This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, January 13th, 2022. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Very happy to have you on board every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, GuyBensonShow.com. That's your one-stop resource for all things related to the show, including our free podcast every day. Coming up, we have Josh Krausauer, politics editor at National Journal. He will be here joining us as will Charlie Hurt in the next hour. And in our final hour, Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa. So a good lineup for you here on the Thursday edition. Let's get going with a Fox News alert. Stats on COVID, 63.2 million cases confirmed in the U.S. all in, cumulatively. That's a massive lowball, of course. The death toll, Americans who have died with or of COVID over these last nearly two years, now 843,327. The Dow is down 83 points at this hour, currently a hair over 36,200. We'll update you next hour when the markets close. Another Fox News alert, and this is breaking news literally just minutes ago. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled on those two COVID mandate cases. And they have split. In the first case on that OSHA mandate, this was basically the Biden administration's effort to require vaccines for private businesses with 100 or more employees. Extremely controversial when it was announced. It has now been struck down, blocked as unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. That was a six to three ruling. You can figure out exactly who voted which way, if you follow the court closely. The six conservatives voted to block that unconstitutional excess by the Biden administration, which seemed constitutionally dubious from the get-go. It's even less defensible now in the Omicron era, with vaccines not stopping the spread. And the three liberal judges, predictably, voted, <clears throat> excuse me, voted to uphold the Biden rule. I have not read the decisions yet, but I can imagine Justice Sotomayor's dissent was something along the lines of, don't you people know that 18 million American children die every day from COVID? That's roughly how familiar she is with the actual facts and data on COVID, as we learned during the oral argument last week. So that's a 6-3 to victory for those who challenged the Biden administration on the private sector mandate or the attempt at it. The other case, though, was for and was battled over this vaccine mandate applying to workers at federally funded health care facilities that receive, you know, Medicaid, Medicare dollars, for example. 
that mandate was upheld by the Supreme Court five to four. So you had the three liberal justices plus the Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh. That was the five justice majority that was allowing that vaccine mandate to remain in place. And then the other four conservatives dissented on that case. And I think that one was at least more constitutionally complicated because you're talking about healthcare workers in federally funded facilities. That's a far cry from private businesses. I would have been really concerned if the private sector mandate was not struck down. Really should have been nine nothing. But it was six to three. That's the big one. But the narrower narrower one that applies to a certain band of workers in a certain profession or realm, healthcare, at federally funded facilities, that mandate has been allowed to stand. And that is the breaking news out of the Supreme Court today. We will have more analysis on that coming up later in the show. But that just happened literally minutes before we came on the air. We also have some more breaking news. It's a very busy Thursday. And it applies to the subject that we have been covering now for a number of days leading up to and certainly in the aftermath of President Biden's really disgusting and insulting speech down in Georgia about the filibuster, about voting rights, etc. And we told you about Senator Romney's response. Mitch McConnell gave a blistering speech yesterday on this. Ben Sass who is temperamentally pretty uh, cool character, not uh, terribly eager to throw rhetorical grenades, right? That's not really his style. He just responded minutes ago on the Senate floor, calling Biden's speech, well, he didn't like it, He said, quote, the president of the United States called half the country a bunch of racist bigots. He doesn't believe that. This was a senile comment of a man who read whatever was loaded into his teleprompter. Oh, damn. That's Ben Sass of Nebraska minutes ago. That'll get some attention, but the more significant speech today on the Senate floor came from a Democrat. Kirsten Sinema of Arizona did what she was expected to do, but the way that she did it was pretty brazen. right? Biden went down and gave this angry speech packed with lies where he tried to suggest, if you don't do the thing that I want you to do and do it the way I want you to do it, you are a racist segregationist. And what did Kirsten Sinema do in response to that? She told the White House, I'm going to go give a speech on the Senate floor affirming my support for the filibuster and opposing what you want to do. So how's that for success, Joe? It's going great, Joe. You're really you're really doing a great job, Mr. President. You go down and debase yourself with a bunch of lies and slanders, and the people that you're trying to bully are so unmoved or, in fact, even put off by it that one of them, Senator Sinema, races at the first opportunity to the Senate floor to go tell you to pound sand. She did it politely, but that's what she did. She remains a no on the nuclear option. Here's part of what she said earlier today, cut 22. Address the disease itself, the disease of division, 
to protect our democracy. And it cannot be achieved by one party alone. It cannot be achieved solely by the federal government. The response requires something greater and, yes, more difficult than what the Senate is discussing today. Translation, as she said more explicitly elsewhere in the speech, she's a no on altering the filibuster rule. And Joe Manchin, her fellow moderate Democrat, was asked about her speech and he said it was excellent. So his position for the one millionth time is also the same. She got applause from Mitch McConnell. They don't have the votes. They do not have the votes to do this. Biden got all angry, did his thing, the whole song and dance, shameful. And he was greeted with a prompt, very polite, middle finger from the junior senator. Although I guess technically she's now the senior senator from Arizona. With an assist, of course, from the senior senator from West Virginia. And all 50 Republicans. So the very good, heartening, encouraging, exciting news today is that President Biden's disgusting performance, that spectacle, that really pissed off a lot of people, including me. I was really mad about it, and I sort of unleashed on this show. I went after him hard on special report last night. It was beneath him and beneath the office and a complete betrayal of the way that he sold himself to voters. But that speech was an absolute failure. That's what's so great about it. He went and wasted that political capital and focused on this issue and riled up and re- sort of invigorated, if you will, the Republican base, the conservatives in this country, while seeming totally out of touch with average Americans who are not concerned about the filibuster. They're concerned about the terrible inflation rates that keep being reported. There's a new number out today, an all-time high on that metric for inflation. And he's down there ranting and raving incoherently and hypocritically. And all he's done is harmed his cause and his political standing. There's some justice in that, isn't there? Right? The arc of justice or the arc of history bends toward justice. Well, we saw that uh, in, in rapid form just this week. And the most important example, the most important evidence thereof is Kirsten Sinema coming out and doing what she did today in no uncertain terms. Failure for President Biden. It's not just that, though. The fact that Dick Durbin, the second highest ranking Democrat in the Senate, went on CNN and was pushed pretty hard on CNN about Biden's rhetoric and how over the top it was, how vitriolic it was. Even Biden, or rather even Durbin, Dick Durbin, had to concede, again, under pressure on CNN, that Biden, the president, had gone too far. You know, things aren't going well and playing the way they hoped when you've got one of the swing votes in the Senate that you're counting on for everything comes out and repudiates you in a floor speech and a member of your party's leadership is dragged into a concession that you 
really shouldn't have said what you said on CNN, of all places. And then there's this. The Washington Post decided to get in on the fact-check game with Biden, and what they homed in on was Biden's claim at one point in the speech that he was arrested during the civil rights movement, you know, on behalf of his, his civil rights activism or whatever. He was recalling that moment in his life when he got arrested because he's really down for the cause, and he's been down for the cause for a long time. I got arrested. Right, this is the pander he was making, except he didn't get arrested. It didn't happen. Right, he said the same crazy thing about when he went to South Africa to visit Nelson Mandela during apartheid. He said he got arrested there. That was just made up. Washington Post fact-checked that one as well. Four Pinocchios for Biden. They looked at this one from Tuesday about his invented arrest, Mr. Civil Rights, calling everyone else a racist. Unlike me, I got arrested. Uh, He didn't. Four Pinocchios again from the Washington Post for President Biden. It's going great, Joe. You did it, Joe. You did it. Four more Pinocchios. It's kind of like he's Forrest Gump. Kind of this, you know, somewhat amiable for the most part, harmless, slow-witted dunce who tells these fantastical stories. Except the character in Forrest Gump, of course, being fictional, uh, the stories in the movie actually happened to him in his life. In Joe Biden's version of Forrest Gump, He, the president, is not a fictional character, but his stories are made up. (laughs) It's just, it's ridiculous. He might want to just take a seat, take a nap, have some chocolates from his box of chocolates, and let someone else govern the country for a while. Oh, but maybe that's not a great idea, on second thought. Because that someone would be Kamala Harris, the vice president, and who, boy, has she been on a roll. She gave an interview on NBC News. It was a doozy. She is so shockingly bad at this. We have some audio. I can't wait to get to it. And it's next on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know... You're getting quality service. 
So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Rough, rough day for Joe Biden. The Supreme Court decision with Kirsten Cinema giving her speech on the Senate floor. And I suggested maybe it's time for him to get some bed rest. But then the person who might have to run the country is his vice president, who is comically bad. Kamala Harris did an interview with NBC for the Today Show with Craig Melvin. And he pressed her lightly on the issue of testing. And this is one of multiple answers that actually made me laugh out loud. Cut 25. We're two years into this. Mm-hmm. Why didn't the administration just go out and, and secure more at-home tests? After the Delta surge in the fall, why are we at a point now where folks still can't get tests? But we just ordered, a, 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 I don't have the number in front of me, but millions of tests. We have 20,000 sites where people can go, and I urge people to, you can Google it or go onto any search engine and find out where free testing and the free testing site is available. But Madam Vice President, the fact that we're still telling people to Google where you can get a test and well, you should... But, but, oh, but come on now. I mean, really, if you, if you want to figure out how to get across town to some restaurant you heard is great, you usually do Google to figure out where it is. So that's simply about giving people, right, a mechanism by which they can locate something that they need, something that can help them. She goes almost into a, come on, man. And then she talks about doing Google. Is she turning into Joe Biden? (laughs) So then on this issue of tests as well and rapid tests and the availability, shouldn't you have done this sooner? Because she didn't know how many tests they had just ordered. It was 500 million, by the way. I knew that because I just read the news. She's the vice president. I know this, this knock on her from her staff that she doesn't do the work, she doesn't do her homework. It's obvious. She didn't know the number. I knew the number. Craig Melvin knew the number. Listen to this exchange, 26. The 500 million tests that have been ordered that are going to be sent to every, every American, do we know when those are going out? Shortly. They're going to go out shortly. They've been or? ordered. They've been ordered. We, I have to look at the current information. I think it's going to be by next week. But soon. Absolutely soon. And it is a matter of urgency for us. Should we have done that sooner? We are doing it. But should we have done it sooner? We are doing it. It's so bad. It's just hilariously incompetent. I don't have the numbers. I don't have that information. I'll have to look at the latest stuff shortly. But isn't it too late? And of course it is too late because the thing's going to peak and then it'll come down. Then we'll get our tests. Should have been sooner. Oh, well, we're doing it. But sooner, right? We're doing it. And this is my favorite one. Cut 27. Does the administration say, you know what? The strategy isn't working. We're going to change strategies. Six former administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. (laughs) Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. 
And so right now we know we still have a number of people that that is in the million. Uh, it is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. You know, sometimes back in school there are kids who didn't do the work or the reading, but they were talented and they could BS well. And you could sort of tell, but you almost were jealous of how good they were at that. Then there were the kids who were just cringe because they didn't do the work. That's Kamala Harris. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free every single day on demand. And we are joined now by Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, welcome back. Good afternoon. Good to be back on the show, Guy. I had a couple things that I wanted to ask you about as I was planning the program earlier in the day, but there has been some news <laughs> that's been breaking just in the last few hours. Let's start with the most recent news, the Supreme Court striking down the Biden administration's, I would say, always constitutionally problematic mandate where they tried to force private businesses of a certain size to force their employees uh, to get vaccinated. That has been thrown out by the court six to three along the sort of ideological lines that are expected. Then there was this other case involving federal facilities or at least facilities that take federal dollars and healthcare workers at those facilities. That mandate from the administration has been upheld five to four. Your reaction, I, I think the, the five four decision will cause some consternation and some debate. The big one was the OSHA regulation one and the private businesses. That was a six three smackdown. It has not been a great day for the president and that would be one of the reasons why. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a capstone on a, on a bad week for the Biden administration, losing in the courts on, on, on the OSHA ruling on the mandate, seeing polls showing him his approval numbers in the 30s, and, and then getting smacked down by Senator Sinema, who said she was not going to support uh, you know getting rid of the filibuster or changing the filibuster to pass a, a voting rights bill. So this is the capstone, and, and it, it may be a, a pattern of, of Supreme Court decisions to come as the Biden administration gets constrained by Congress and, and deals with the, the, the growing likelihood Republicans are going to take back at least one branch of Congress uh, in, in the future, uh, you're going to see more executive orders. You're going to be see, see more action that's not done through Congress. And you now have a clear 6-3 majority, conservative majority in the Supreme Court that is clearly viewing some of the more aggressive measures uh, being done through the executive branch, through the agencies, with a lot more skepticism. And it, it, make no mistake. Oh, and, and rightly so. I mean, I don't even think, uh, of course, I am ideological. I am a conservative. But just trying to take a step back, to me, as someone who is not a fan of the mandates, was following these cases, you know, loosely, to me, trying to force a bunch of private businesses to institute a vaccine mandate was a big problem the moment it was announced, especially when Biden was saying we're not going to do mandates 
after he was elected, we're not going to do it. The CDC director said we're not doing that. The press secretary said we're not doing that. Then they did it not only for people within their purview, but also for the private sector as they, they tried to do it that way. And that seemed like way, way beyond the scope of what his power would be. And it was six to three. The Supreme Court agreed. When it comes to health care workers who are working at facilities that get federal money, that at least seems to be more like a gray area where I'm not totally up in arms that the court split 5-4 saying, okay, that, that one can stay. The big one for me was the, the real profound overreach, and that was shut down and blocked just about an hour and a half ago, not even an hour ago, by the U.S. Supreme Court, all six conservatives uh, getting that one right. And I, I don't know what the progressives are thinking. Well, we know what one of them is thinking. Well, that there's a bunch of kids in the hospital that aren't in the hospital, but <laughs> it is what it is. Well, and Guy, let me maybe offer some against-the-grain analysis. I, I actually think there might be some folks in the administration on a political level that, that were quietly breathing a sigh of relief, uh, not, not because they, disagree, they clearly were advocating for, for, for keeping the OSHA uh, regulations, but the, the unions and the government were, were fighting the, 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 the mandate. You had the yep. Postal Service fighting the mandate. This is going to create, if this law was upheld, this rule, this regulation was upheld, there would have been internal governmental fights among some of the administration's allies about the, the scope and, and, and that is and, a and, and very this, this is why we bring you on the show this is like seems on the fastball here from josh k on why there might have been a sigh of relief i felt kind of the same way about at least some elements of the administration when the supreme court said that the way they had gotten rid of the administration had gotten rid of remain in mexico that policy on immigration yeah. they wanted to tell their advocates and their activists oh uh we're, we we ended that and we're fighting them in court but it was such a disastrous thing that they did to reverse a Trump-era successful policy that you kind of would have to imagine at least some of the more pragmatic folks would say, okay, we can blame this on the Supreme Court, but at least part of our political problem might go away or at least get mitigated. Uh, this could be a similar example. Now, when you were running through the, the rough day for POTUS, you also mentioned the other big story – and I even hesitate to call it like a big story because it's just a United States senator repeating for the umpteenth time the thing that she has said over and over again, said on the campaign trail, said after she was elected, and has done in practice. But Kirsten Sinema, one of two Democrats in the Senate, willing to openly say they are not going to change the rules of the Senate to kill the filibuster, to do whatever the latest you know, left-wing project is. They'll always find a reason why it's a life-and-death, most important issue ever in the history of mankind. That's what people do to justify what they want. Politically, you've got Manchin and Sinema who've been saying no, no, and no. Sinema, I think, wanted to not only say no, but to say it loudly and to say it directly in response to the really over-the-top, beyond-the-pale bullying that we saw from the president in that sort of factually challenged, demagogic, racially charged speech that he gave down in Atlanta. If the goal was to try to bully someone like Cinema into submission, she's like, you know what, I'm going to go to the floor of the Senate, and I'm going to say I'm still a hard no. I mean, what another failure for Biden. Yeah, so two points on this guy. Number one, it, it seems like every day it, you have this Lucy and Charlie Brown football moment where Democrats almost want to pull the ball from under themselves every time they raise expectations 
that whether it's Build Back Better, that Joe Manchin is going to support Build Back Better, or whether it's Senator Sinema who's going to change her position on, on changing the filibuster, and it never comes to fruition because it's born in fantasy. It, it's never been. I mean, I don't know how Senator Sinema. Senator Cinema, even before today, could have been any clearer about her position. She's articulated it very clearly on many occasions. Same with Build Back Better, and we talked about this over the last few months in Senator Manchin. Democrats don't seem to un- – no means no. Senator Manchin has made it clear. Senator Cinema has made herself very clear, and she really, you know, really slapped the, the White House pretty, pretty aggressively uh, in her floor speech today. No, I also I think-, think that – you know. Yeah, go I was ahead. Just gonna say, Senator Kamala Harris gave an interview, the vice president, on the Today yep. Show this morning, yep. where she essentially compared the two Democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema, to again Bull Connor and, and and the most retrograde leaders, uh, segregationists. I mean, I don't know how you win votes that way. I don't understand. Politics 101 is you want to build coalitions, make friends especially within your own party, the notion that Senator Sinema's reaction and doing it in a very public way was a clear rebuke to, to these oh, very, yeah. very out-of-bounds out of White House pressures. Well, and Harris, the vice president, in fairness to the vice president, she is the opposite of politically gifted, and so she made a hash of that interview. We played some of the clips earlier. I, I actually genuinely had belly laughs watching those clips <laughs> because she's awful. She's awful to the point of comedy. And so I just played them, and, and we had some fun with that. We did not play the clip that you just mentioned, but again, that's not going to help bring those people on side. And they're still relying on Mansion and Cinema to pass anything in their agenda. And I know you like to talk about notable quotables. There have been a few just in the last 24 hours from Joe Manchin. So Cinema gave her speech, and just... I don't even want to call it double down. She like she said it a hundred times. This is my position. It's still my position. It killed this whole stupid misadventure dead. Manchin was asked about her speech, and he said it was excellent. He loved her speech, so he's backing her up. They are not moving on this issue. So that was notable. Like they they have not flinched. If anything. This was counterproductive. Like, she wanted to go out and make this point. I almost get the sense sometimes like she's enjoying this. And what Biden's also done, I'll come back to to Manchin in a second, but what Biden's also done, Josh, he's pissed off some of these Republicans something awful. I mean, Ben Sass is a, a pretty circumspect, laconic guy. And he was on the Senate floor today talking about this being a senile thing that Biden did. He's angry. McConnell gave a 16-minute speech on this yesterday that was, by McConnell's standards, just devastating. Very long, extremely thorough. We talked about it last night on Special Report. Uh, I thought it was an excellent speech. Uh, I think people should go watch it. We mentioned at length yesterday Mitt Romney's speech on this. He was clearly... Uh, offended by what the president said, but was also directing his criticism at the mansions and cinemas saying, let's make an institutional case for why this is a bad idea. I thought it was a very savvy speech by Romney. And again, I haven't forgotten my second point on mansion, but I just want to get your take on this real quick for, and and we're going to play the audio later in the show, but for the White House to react to Romney the way that they did, basically just dismissing it, saying, oh, well, that's rich coming from the party that never showed up to Trump. I mean, to to just do the but Trump thing doesn't work for them because their whole their whole 
campaign was, we're not going to be Trump. So saying, well, we're not, you know, oh, but but these people in Trump, that's that's weak stuff to begin with. And it also doesn't apply at all to Mitt Romney for reasons that a lot of Republicans know very well. and They're not happy about. But but that's what Jen Psaki decided to go with. It just it's it's striking how weak that argument is. Yeah, it's very tone deaf. It does. It's not reading the room accurately. In fact, the administration's biggest problem is they they could have co-opted some of the more moderate Republicans, the anti-Trump folks like Sass and Romney and, and a handful of others, and then try to build the uh, coalitions and really build bigger majorities, build build popular support. But from the get-go, from the first months in office, the the, the president Biden has been pushing through a party line efforts, whether it was on the emergency COVID bills or it's on now it's on, on the issue of voting voting access. Uh, he, he, he even on, on this issue, by the way, there are Republicans and Democratic senators working on, on the biggest challenge in terms of counting votes and fixing and, and trying to remedy some of the the problems that yes. Trump created in the aftermath of the twenty twenty well, election. The Electoral Count Act reform, which Chuck Schumer dismissed as a distraction and offensive. So that's the position he's chosen to take. Again, these are decisions. These are leadership political decisions that these people are making. They are terrible. And in some ways, I'm grateful that they're being this terrible because they're getting a lot less done that I would be unhappy about. And they're also making crystal clear that the whole fairy tale of what the Joe Biden presidency would be about was absolutely fraudulent from the get-go. President Biden is unrecognizable from President-elect Biden. And the yeah. speech that he well, gave when he declared victory we was talking about healing, cooperation, and decency, and we're not enemies, and, and that is not the man that we saw this week in Georgia. And he did what he did in Georgia to absolutely no effect, in fact, to negative effect. I know you want to make one more quick point before I circle back in Jen Psaki's honor to Senator Manchin. Well, quickly, on staff, I mean, the buck does stop with the president, but if Ron Klain, the chief of staff, was a football coach and he was putting up this many losses, he would be on the hot seat, just like all these NFL coaches getting fired this week are um, because they're not. Well, he's still look. In fairness, Josh, and, I mean, cut the cut the guy some slack. He's very busy on Twitter retweeting Jennifer Rubin. That's what he seems to do with his days. And again, that's a choice, a bold choice, but a choice by the White House chief of staff on Mansion, because you mentioned Build Back Better. Back to the notable quotables. Manchin said yesterday in response to yet another terrible inflation number that he was deeply concerned by it. Today, we get uh, another stat that just came out, which was about another metric, producer prices soaring by nearly 10% in December year over year, the biggest gain on record year over year on that uh, measure of inflation. If the president hopes to resurrect something of Build Back Better, even like a skeleton of Build Back Better, that Joe Manchin might be willing to play ball on. Inflation keeps getting worse, so that doesn't help, and Manchin's clearly paying very close attention to that. And also Manchin and Kirsten Cinema just sat there and listened as the president basically called them segregationists. I just, I, I, for the life of me, is the strategy that they've given up on doing anything next year at all, or I guess this year now, leading up into uh, up into the election, and the goal is to just, like, throw up their hands and tell the base, we tried and it's not our fault, go vote for us? What are they doing? Well, that's not a winning message. That's a surefire way to have a historically bad 
midterm election if that's the path they continue on. Um, look, I, 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 but Build Back Better is dead. I, I don't see a pared down version of it uh, getting the support of, of Senator Manchin at this point. I think they may have, at, at, at some point in the past if they went in a different direction that could have been possible. But they burned their bridges with, with Senator Manchin and, and with a lot of other potential allies they could have could have relied on in the past. And, and I don't think that that's coming back. And inflation is only making uh, the prospects of that even even dimmer. Um, look, I, I, the. This administration needs to do an economic reset. I, I was watching uh, spokesman Jen Psaki and Brian Deese yesterday, almost trying to spin away the really bad inflation news. Um, you know, as someone who deals with a lot of flax, deals with a lot of press secretaries, you lose credibility if you don't acknowledge the problem transparently, even as you try to spin it. You can, you can say it's a problem and we're, we've got it under control and this is what we're going to do, but you've lost all credibility when you're just so unwilling to acknowledge that there's a problem in the first place. And I think that's what this White House really needs to get, get a grip on, that, that the public has, has lost trust in, in what they're saying. They've lost trust in, in the credibility and, and, and competence right now of, of this administration on the economy specifically and on COVID as well. And they need to focus on those two issues to get, get their job approval ratings Josh, back to, to a healthy step. Josh, last question. Short answer from you, if you could. Glenn Youngkin is going to be inaugurated as the governor of Virginia this coming weekend. He swung the electorate about 12 points in the Republican direction to win that race in November. You're a big Virginia politics guy. You watch it very closely. What do you think he's going to try to do and prioritize in year one of the Yunkin governorship? Yeah, I mean, the two issues that I'm focused on are education, which is what he ran on and, and, and really won on. Uh, and also the, the governor-elect uh, focus is going to have to focus on COVID. And I think there's going to be a much different approach to the COVID uh, uh, pan- the pandemic and making maybe like getting out of the out of the, out of the pandemic and into the endemic phase of of, of, of the of, a, of the, the issue. Uh, I think he's going to be much more uh, of a, of, a, of an open Virginia type of state. I think he's going to lead on trying to get rid of the mask mandates in schools. Um, I expect him to have a, a very to live up to some of the promises he made on the campaign trail. And yep, got that, open that open the state. Get rid of some of these. Restrictions that do nothing, cut some taxes, expand charter schools. That'd be an awesome start. And the start begins just a few days from now. Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal, one of our analysts here at Fox News Radio. Josh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Guy. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Well, the White House hit Kirsten Cinema with, I guess, their best shot, and it wasn't so great. Hey, you're a racist. Do what we want. She's like, no. How about that? Next. Thank you. Next. From Senator Cinema. I was reminded of all that hagiography around Elizabeth Warren, right? When she, had, nevertheless, she persisted. People were getting tattoos. Look at this strong woman standing up to pressure. What a woman. We celebrate these women in the Democratic Party, but not Kirsten Sinema. 
Nevertheless, she persisted, but they don't like that because she's not persisting the way they want. That's the difference. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern and around the clock on demand for free on the podcast. It's all at GuyBensonShow.com. Still to come in the next hour, Senator Joni Ernst is going to be here. Looking forward to that. First, quickly, a Fox News alert as we bring you the latest from Wall Street. The Dow closes down 175 points today, ending at 36,114. We are pleased to welcome back to the show now Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at The Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Guy, how are you? So, look, I wanted to ask you about a bunch of stuff, and maybe we'll get to some of it, but I just want an excuse to play some of this audio again. I don't know if you saw Kamala Harris with NBC this morning, but it's just fantastic. It's so wonderfully horrible. And uh, let's, let's talk. So she had a few fumbles on questions about testing, and she talked about how someone should go do Google for that, which is fun. Uh, she didn't know the numbers. This was a good one. Cut 26. This back and forth with Craig Melvin. The 500 million tests that have been ordered that are going to be sent to every, every American, do we know when those are going out? Shortly. They're going to go out shortly. Next They've been or? ordered. They've been ordered. We, I have to look at the current information. I think it's going to be by next week. But soon, absolutely soon, and it is a matter of urgency for us. Should we have done that sooner? We are doing it. But should we have done it sooner? We are doing it. Charlie? <laughs> it's, the, it's the mail-in vice presidency. You, you, you thought that you could not be more unprepared, even though Joe Biden has spent 50 years preparing for this? You thought it was not possible to be more unprepared? He picked a vice president who is even more unprepared than he is for this or for or, or for any service whatsoever. I have a friend I was texting about this. I actually just because I'm going to I'm going to play you this next. In fact, let me play you the next clip first and then uh, we, we will riff on that. This was uh, the question from Melvin was maybe could it be time to pivot to a new approach on COVID and like the data clearly makes the case for that. There are people who have worked in the administration who wrote an op-ed begging them to do that. They're stuck in this same rut treating COVID like it's it's a different disease. It's like the, the former virus not adapting to new realities. That was basically the, the gist of the question. And the answer is just a work of art. Just paint it, paint it on a giant canvas and hang it in the smithsonian this quote cut 27 does the administration say you know what the strategy isn't working we're going to change strategies six former 
administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. <laughs> every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. And so right now we know we still have a number of people that, that is in the million. Um, so I, I tweeted, Charlie, one of those inspirational posters, and this is a bald eagle flying in the air, and it says, dare to soar, dare to soar. And this is the inspirational quote for the day. It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day is the time. Thank you, Vice President Harris. <laughs> it really is amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll hand it to, to these people. There's a lot that is unpredictable about a pandemic. You know, for example, the pandemic. It's sort of, <laughs> in and of itself, unpredictable. Mm -hmm. But there is one thing that is absolutely predictable, and that is the variance. There, it's going to keep coming, and it's going to be shape-shifting and coming at you in a different form. And the idea that that was the one thing that everybody that, that, that both she and Biden have both acknowledged now, they did not see that coming. That was a curveball they were not expecting. It's the only curveball that isn't a curveball. It's the only thing that, they, that you can absolutely guarantee is going to happen, and they were still completely uh, unprepared for it. And here's the other thing. You, you remember back when people were talking about uh, herd immunity, and you got killed. You were drummed out of society. You were a murderer. You were okay with everybody dying if you said something about herd immunity. And I get it. It's a, it, 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 you know, especially at that time when there were a lot of questions and a lot of people were, and, and all the fear mongering was out of control. I get it. It's kind of, it, it makes you sort of queasy the idea that, okay, well, we're going to let this thing run its course. But stop and think about this guy. Think about the, the, the number of lives that, pro that could have been saved if at that moment we decided, okay, this thing is going to do its thing. Let us stop with all the crazy rules and the lockdowns and the masks for children and closing schools. And all that. Let's instead focus on the most important thing, which is protecting vulnerable people. Let's do everything we can to protect vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing as what herd immunity is. And this Omicron thing is exactly what herd immunity is. Well, it's I'd say especially during Omicron, its course. especially yeah. during Omicron, which is so contagious and so much more mild, like now would be the time to course correct and make a shift. But I must remind you, Charlie, no, no. It is time for us <laughs> to do what we have been doing. And that time is every day. Every day I, I can, is the time. I can and see one the of my friends texted me right now. <laughs> one of my friends texted me. She was listening. And I, would, I don't know if you ever did this in your career, but when I first got to Washington, it was like 2010, 2011. I had just started at townhall.com. I was starting to do some very low-level TV appearances here and there, uh, you know, within the last year or so. And our boss paid for us to go over to the Leadership Institute and do one of these media trainings where they put you in a fake little studio and they have someone who interviews you and then they give you feedback on what's good and what works and some best practices. And she was like, has anyone has anyone thought about signing up the vice president for like a low level <laughs> introductory 101 media training? Because it seems like she needs it. 
Yeah. No, and, and, and so does Joe Biden, by the way. I mean, this business, and Joe Biden has been doing this for 50 years. You would think he would be good at it by now. The, the, the whole talking to people thing, he would be good at it. But these lectures and these vicious lectures, and, and it was kind of interesting. He sort of changed his tone a little bit today on the Hill. He was a little bit more humble and respectful to the people he works for, i.e. the American people. He was a little bit more humble today than he was yesterday accusing people of being Bull Connor and, yep. and Jefferson, Jefferson Davis. It's astonishing. And, and, and we have to sort of, you know, we cannot become inured to it because it really is that appalling that you have a president of the United States haranguing half of the population as being Bull Connor and, uh, and Jefferson Davis because they don't want to go a- along with this electoral klepto uh, you know, Democrat installation preservation thing. Um, it's it's really appalling, and um, and and we and we can't lose sight of our own outrage. Did you have an elected president? Haranguing the American people the way Biden has been doing lately? Yeah, and I, I was on a special report on the panel yesterday, and I really let Biden have it. I thought this was a very low moment in his presidency. And I was on with Bill Bennett. He was also on the panel. He said, who is this guy? You know, I knew Joe Biden. I've known Joe Biden for years, you know, back in the Senate and all this stuff. Who was this guy? And I understand the point he's making. McConnell made the same point. I get it. But I, I felt compelled to say on TV, you know, in response, I said, Bill, this is the same guy who told a black audience in 2012 that Mitt Romney yeah. and Paul Ryan wanted to put them back in chains. This guy is not above doing that sort of thing. He does it. Uh, Sometimes I guess he feels chastened and embarrassed after he does it. And maybe that was the case today. But there is a there is a nasty streak in Joe Biden. And we're seeing it. Certainly we saw it this week. Charlie, very quickly, less than a minute to go. I asked a similar question to Josh Krasauer in the last hour about prediction. My question is slightly different for you. Glenn Youngkin becomes governor of your state, Virginia, uh, this weekend. What would you like to see him do in the first year? 30 seconds. Well, the, first, the most important thing is I would like to, to see him make good on his promises to put uh, the, the issue of education back in the hands of Virginia parents and out of the hands of bureaucrats and politicians. That's the single most important thing. And if, and if he is able to, to take education and turn it back into the issue of parents, and not even Republicans, but parents and conservatives and families, then it will be a tremendous victory. Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at The Washington Times, Fox News contributor. Charlie, always appreciate it. Talk to you again soon on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. It's The Guy Benson Show. We have... Senator Joni Ernst coming up in the next hour from Iowa. Looking forward to that conversation. Want to get her reaction to the disgusting display from President Biden this week. But first, we're going to shift gears a bit and get into COVID. I have a lot to say coming up in the next segment. Some new emails have come to light about what scientists were saying to each other privately in the earliest stages of the pandemic including Dr. Anthony Fauci, and how they seemed to collude 
not to tell the rest of us what they were thinking. It's pretty extraordinary. It seems quite incriminating. We will bring you that story in the next segment. But first, there's this. Let's go back to the year 2020, which was dominated by the pandemic. We didn't know a lot about the disease back then. There were, of course, very few treatments, if any, for much of that year and no vaccine. The vaccine started to roll out, I suppose, at the very, very end of 2020. But for the most part, it was just let's try to socially distance and make the best of this. Wash your hands. You remember the mindset. You remember what it felt like. We all just lived through it. In that year, in 2020, there has now been an analysis done looking at kids, teenagers, 13 to 18. So middle school through high school, late middle school through high school. And we, remember, have just uprooted kids' lives. And in far too many cases, we continue to do so throughout all of 2020, all of 2021, and in some cases still in 2022. Even the places that have gone back somewhat to normal in schools are still doing anti-scientific things like forcing masks on these kids or canceling a bunch of extracurricular activities, refusing to allow kids to live normally. It was worst and most widespread in 2020. So now that we look back on the data, this is CDC data, there was a comparison of two types of deaths among 13 to 18-year-old Americans during that year, the first year of the pandemic. And they go back all the way through 2008. The two categories of death are, first, respiratory disease deaths, which would include COVID deaths, of course. And then the second cause of death category is drug and alcohol-induced deaths among 13 to 18-year-olds. And I cannot put this up on the screen because we're on radio and not television, but I will try to paint a word picture for you. It's a bar graph. And on the x-axis, they have the years, 2008, 2009, 2010, all the way through 2020. And on the y-axis, they have the mortality rates, the deaths. And then there are two colors to the bars. Blue is respiratory disease deaths among American teenagers. And the red bars are drug and alcohol-induced deaths. And when you look at the blue bars all the way through, year over year, they're just about the same. Some years they're up a little bit, some years they're down a little bit, but there is a very low incidence of respiratory disease deaths among 13 to 18-year-olds in America. Bouncing along all the way to 2020, when you might expect this novel virus with no cure, no vaccine yet, hits the country. But there's virtually no difference. There's almost no increase at all. In fact, the death rate of respiratory diseases among 13 to 18-year-old Americans in 2020 was slightly lower than it was, for example, in 2009. 
It was higher than 2018, higher than 2019, up a little bit, but not a lot. It looks like a slightly higher than average year, but sort of on par. Then your eye goes inevitably to the red bars on this graph. Drug and alcohol deaths among American teenagers. And in 2020, the number spikes. I mean, it spikes. It looks basically twice as high as it did in the previous years on average. And the takeaway here is that COVID-19, coronavirus, did not statistically significantly increase respiratory disease mortality among American teens. Even though we locked down everything and closed down schools and forced these kids to basically stay in their homes and do nothing, the whole world was in a panic. Even though we were learning over the course of that year that kids, thank God, were not terribly affected by this, which is why a lot of other countries just opened their schools. Because it wasn't a threat. It wasn't dangerous. Private schools started to open, certainly in 2021. Florida, other places. But you had a bunch of adults, at first in panic, and then later, I think, in some cases, for perhaps even malevolent reasons, they insisted on turning these kids' lives upside down. And whereas respiratory disease deaths did not increase statistically significantly, and that mortality burden in 2020, among that age group, 13 to 18, drug and alcohol-induced deaths roughly doubled. Nearly a 50% increase with that age group, with that sort of death. And if that does not make these people take a step back and reconsider what they have done to our kids with lockdowns and school closures and restrictions and all of these rules, for children, I think it is almost impossible to argue at this point that the reaction to COVID was much worse and certainly much more deadly than the disease itself. That matters, and it matters a lot. Now, what did scientists think they knew about how this whole thing got started, the origins of COVID? Some new emails absolutely making waves. We will bring you that information as soon as we return on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for listening on this Thursday on The Guy Benson Show. I want to talk about COVID and some new revelations about the origins of the virus. And I know that we heard from Dr. Fauci this week that that's not really that important. And what matters now is how we can help the American people. I think we can walk and chew gum and we have to. It's important to have good advice on what to do about this pandemic, especially as it evolves and changes. Whether he has that best advice, whether he furnishes that best advice, I think is very much an open question. I saw a new poll today that shows his trustworthiness has really taken a significant hit among the American people. I think he can blame himself for that. But just looking right in front of us at what do we do now, that's only part of the puzzle. 
Another part of the puzzle is how did this virus originate? It has killed millions of people. The government that has covered it up is the Chinese Communist Party. And there are serious questions, not moonbat crazy stuff, about whether U.S. tax dollars were actually funneled to this lab in Wuhan to conduct some of this dangerous or potentially dangerous research. And there are some people, including Fauci, who do not want to talk about that and are splitting hairs and parsing intensely about what really constituted funding or what constituted gain-of-function research. And was it really dangerous or potentially problematic or was it the more benign form of this kind of research he dances around these questions a lot when he's confronted on them and he sometimes conflates them with personal attacks against him which they are not i would also add before i get to this new revelation that emerged in the press yesterday if someone is not being fully forthcoming about the origins of this virus and this pandemic and the potential role that he or his organization or his allies played in those origins, directly or indirectly, either one, that I think calls into question that individual's ability and credibility when it comes to giving us good advice based on science now, right? Looking backwards matters as well when it comes to credibility. And on the flip side, on potential conflicts of interest. So we saw the blow up earlier in the week between Rand Paul and Fauci. We didn't play the audio here because they get into a food fight every time. Sometimes Paul gets the better of it. Sometimes Fauci does. They each have their hardcore fans. I'm sort of in neither camp. However, we now have this from the UK Daily Telegraph, and I read this, and it made me stop in my tracks last night. I'll just read to you from this story out of the UK press. Leading British and U.S. scientists thought it was likely that COVID accidentally leaked from a laboratory, but were concerned that further debate would harm science in China, emails show. An email from Sir Jeremy Farrer, director of the Wellcome Trust, on February 2nd, 2020. This is really early stage stuff. This is before we really start getting a lot of cases in the U.S. When things started to shut down in earnest in the United States, that was what, mid-March? I was on my honeymoon at the end of January of 2020, and I remember the headlines about how it was just arriving in Australia around that time. So this is extremely early days. An email sent in early February 2020 said that, quote, a likely explanation was that COVID had rapidly evolved from a SARS-like virus inside human tissue in a low-security lab. The email sent to Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins of the U.S. National Institutes of Health went on to say that such evolution may have, quote, accidentally created a virus primed for rapid transmission between humans. But a leading scientist told Sir Jeremy that, quote, further debate do unnecessary harm to science in general and to science in particular in China. 
Dr. Collins, the former director of NIH, warned that it could also damage, quote, international harmony, end quote. So there was a meeting of the scientific minds back in February 2020, before this thing really even exploded in the West, certainly in the U.S., and they were debating amongst themselves based on everything that they were seeing in those early on days, where did this thing come from? And in those discussions, if you read the story, and there's multiple reports on this, some of these scientists were coming in and saying, we think it's at best a 50-50 proposition. Others were saying it might be 70-30 in terms of favoring the lab leak theory. But pretty quickly, it was decided among the group, let's not go down that route. They attacked other scientists who were more open and public about the lab leak theory. Fauci went out of his way to dismiss it and downplay it. One of his allies, of course, who helped fund the research in Wuhan at that lab. Right, as a lab that studied bat coronaviruses. Then we had a bat coronavirus that got out of control and escaped and infected the world. And people were treating that like it was a total conspiracy just to ask that question, including this buddy of Fauci's who was sending him emails privately thanking him for batting down no pun intended, the lab leak theory publicly. Even though privately, in February, Fauci got the email within this group discussion about a, quote, likely explanation, which was the lab leak theory, where the evolution of the virus could have been caused, quote, accidentally in a virus primed for rapid transmission between humans. So here are these scientists, we now know from these revealed emails, talking amongst themselves, whispering effectively, Ooh, this, this looks like this could be from the lab. 50-50, maybe 60-40, maybe, maybe 70-30. This isn't looking good. But then it was decided among the same group with Fauci and Collins, apparently at the center of it, saying, no, this could do unnecessary damage. Should the people know? Should the masses learn about this? That could do unnecessary harm to science and science in China specifically, they were more worried, this email and thread would suggest, they were more worried about the reputation of science and their colleagues and their ability to get grant money and do the type of stuff they want to do, including in China, if not especially in China, that was their top concern versus actually being transparent and open about their candid thoughts Extremely, this is like inning one of this pandemic. It's the top of the first, to use a baseball analogy. And immediately they are worried about something and they decide, nope, don't tell the fans in the stands. Because it could hurt baseball broadly. Let's just, let's not do it. And it's not that they just chose to downplay or look the other way or not really engage with that possibility as seriously and openly as they should have. Some of them, including Collins and Fauci, took it a step further by criticizing or swatting down what people were saying about the thing that privately they knew was at least a very real possibility. And because of their putting the thumb on the scale, remember, these are supposed to be, oh, no, we just followed the science. This sounds like politics to me. Doesn't it to you? They weren't saying, oh, gosh, this is not scientifically plausible, this theory. No, they were saying, oh gosh, 
This theory might be very plausible, but it could hurt science and science in China. So let's not go there. Plus, international harmony could be harmed if this gets out. That's politics. That is absolutely not science, but that is what they were engaged in at the time. So I don't know how you can call what they have done anything other than a cover-up. I think there need to be more hearings. Drag these people back under oath. I'm sure Fauci will get all angry and indignant at Rand Paul again and accuse Rand Paul of putting his family in danger by criticizing him. I mean, Rand Paul has been attacked personally over political disputes, physical violence. He was also on the baseball field that got shot up. I think Fauci might be barking up the wrong tree. That victimhood that he's trying to use as a shield doesn't really work, I don't think, in this case. And this is just the latest example that at the very least raises eyebrows, or at least it really should. I saw it, and my jaw dropped. I mean, it is... Not quite maybe a fully smoking gun. I would like to hear the full explanations and what they say the context was and all of it. But this has a whiff of smoking gun-ish revelation, doesn't it? So there was this conference call in early February. One of the scientists who is there is called Bob Gary. And he is now writing... He was on that conference call. Fauci was on the call. Collins was on the call. It's not like they were just sort of BCC'd and never got around to it. They were there. And he says of that conference call, he and his colleagues were advised, quote, number one, don't try to write a paper at all. It's unnecessary. Talking about the theory of the origins here. Don't try to write about this. Is that not sort of a threat or censorship? Circling the wagons, the scientific wagons, to shut down very realistic and extremely important scientific inquiry in the name of politics and harmony or whatever? That's how it reads. And then two, I'm still quoting here from Bob Gary, who was on this conference call. So number one, don't try to write a paper on this. Number two, if you do write it, Don't mention a lab origin, as that will just add fuel to the conspiracists. But what if the conspiracists were right? Seems like some of the scientists in the very early going actually believed that the what turned out to be very plausible thing was very plausible all along. And calling it a conspiracy theory, as we did for, what, a year Whereas labeled misinformation, people could get suspended. Tom Cotton mentioned it as a possibility. He got fact-checked by everyone. Dangerous, wrong, anti-science. Actually, no. As Mary Catherine Ham also points out on Twitter, you know what also tends to fuel conspiracists? Setting aside whether or not this is actually a conspiracy sounds extremely viable as a theory now, as even Fauci belatedly finally admits even though he was scurrying around, working hard to suppress it for a long time, we now know. Mary Catherine Ham says, the other thing that will fuel a conspiracy, whether it's true or not, is a bunch of people getting together and conspiring not to be transparent. 
and to withhold information. That will do some of the fueling as well. So I want to put that on your radar. I don't want to engage in overbroad conclusions. I don't want to make the mistake that others have made by getting over my skis or pretending that I'm some sort of expert. You read, however, that story in the Telegraph and some of these emails, and you say, okay, this is not above board at the very, very least. Meanwhile, let's flash forward to today. What should we be doing today in this stage of the pandemic with this virus? Dr. Rochelle Walensky, CDC director, tweeted this earlier about a new study on the severity of those infected with Omicron compared to Delta. Omicron, she says, based on this study, represents a 53% decrease in risk of symptomatic hospitalization compared to incidental hospitalization. We know there's a ton of that right now. 53% less risk of symptomatic hospitalization. 74% less risk of ICU admission. 91% less risk of death. And zero, she writes, zero Omicron patients required mechanical ventilation with Omicron. This is, this variant, in some ways like a different virus. It is much less severe. All of the data shows it. From South Africa to the UK to now this study being touted by Walensky of all people. Zero Omicron patients requiring ventilation. 91% less risk of death with Omicron versus Delta. That's really good news. I'm all for vaccination. I'm all for getting the booster shot if your doctor says you're eligible for it and it makes sense for you. We need to move on. We cannot keep restructuring our society and our lives in fear of a virus whose latest iteration is less dangerous than any of the previous ones. Putting new types of masks on kids makes no sense. I know people say, we can't say the pandemic's over because kids still aren't vaccinated. Unvaccinated children are safer from COVID than vaccinated adults. And these mitigation strategies that may have worked in the past are not working against Omicron. The vaccines will keep you out of the hospital if you're an adult. It'll keep you out of the grave if you're an adult from COVID. But it's not preventing transmission. We need to recognize that things are different now. We should celebrate that things are better now. And we should go back to our lives and end or severely curb the restrictions as opposed to doing the opposite, which is what a lot of these psychos are still doing and demanding. And when you push back on it, even with the best new data, they accuse you of wanting people dead or killing kids. It's not based on science at all. Do not let these neurotic people and their anti-science fear determine how we live. A lot of red states have figured that out long ago. It is especially true now. Enough. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, yesterday we spent quite a lot of time playing lots of sound from Senator Mitt Romney, really excoriating the president's speech in Georgia yesterday and making a case 
I argued to some of the wavering Democrats about why they should not go along with this filibuster power grab or the so-called voting rights scheme that the Democrats are discussing. Circle back at the White House, Jen Psaki was asked about Romney's speech, and her answer I thought was pathetic but revealing. Cut 31. I know there has been a lot of claim of the offensive nature of the speech yesterday, which is hilarious on many levels, given how many people sat silently over the last four years for the former president. But I would note that in our view and the president's view, what is far more offensive is the effort to suppress people's basic right to exercise who they want to support and who they want to elect. That's not a partisan thing. Uh, and that uh, that was why he gave such a strong speech yesterday. No one is suppressing the right to vote. That's a lie. It's a made up crisis. She says it's not a partisan thing, except it is. Every single Republican opposes it, including Mitt Romney. You can say a lot of things about him. You cannot say that he was one of the people who sat silently by about Trump. Of course, they make it about Trump. But that doesn't apply to Romney. She knows it, but she went there anyway because she's got nothing. Really weak stuff because there's nothing better for her to latch on to. Very, very telling. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming right up. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time now for the Thursday happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern, every weekday. And you've got the podcast on demand, round the clock, no charge, absolutely free, including on the weekends, bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, all the information always right there. GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the crisp and delicious Finnish long drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage is in America. It is really good. They are about to expand even more. Can't wait to tell you about that in the coming weeks. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. 21 plus only and always drink responsibly. We are now joined on The Guy Benson Show by U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican from Iowa, the first female combat veteran elected to the U.S. Senate, author of the book Daughter of the Heartland, Senator Ernst, it's great to talk to you again, and welcome back. Oh, thanks, Guy. Yes, I think we need a happy hour here at the <laughs> Senate. Certainly a lot going on, and we need to slow down a bit. Although it kind of feels like maybe some of your Democratic colleagues have had too much to drink, and they're a little <laughs> drunk on power here. They don't have power by much of a margin. It's 50-50, and yet they want to blow up the rules for this power grab to pass a, a truly insane bill that would take over all of the elections, the federal elections in this country, by the federal government on a party-line basis with all sorts of just totally poisonous provisions. And we heard this week from President Biden, who said, down in Georgia, if you don't like that plan, if you think that getting rid of photo ID in order to cast a ballot, if you think that ballot harvesting should be legal everywhere, if you think that taxpayers should have to fund the campaigns of candidates that they oppose. If you don't agree with any of that, you're basically a segregationist racist. Here's what he said on Tuesday, cut one. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression 
over voters' rights. And it will be even less kind for those who side with election subversion. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide, to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. George Wallace, an mm. infamous, notorious segregationist. Bull Connor, mm-hmm. an abject racist. Jefferson Davis, a traitor to the country. Mm-hmm. He's lumping you, Senator. He's lumping you and at least 51 other senators into that category. How did you react when you heard those words, first heard them from President Biden? Very offended, Guy. And folks may know, may not know, but when I began my political career, I served as a county auditor in southwest Iowa. And as a county auditor, I was the commissioner of elections. And I can tell you that Iowa has one of the best election systems out there. And it is far more progressive. Even after engaging with voter ID, we do require voter ID at the polls, which voters in Iowa appreciate because they know their voting rights are being safeguarded and protected. Um, but even in a state like Iowa, which is a red state, someone who would disagree with the federalization of the elections process, it is far more progressive than the voting uh, laws that exist in the president's home state of Delaware yep. and Leader Schumer's home state of New York. So if they are talking about changing what they are calling voting rights, maybe they should start in their own states first. Yeah, go give that angry speech and yell at yourself. Go scream in the mirror, Mr. Mm-hmm. President. You got elected under a racist, suppressive system in Delaware for decades, and you did nothing about it because this is all a joke. That's the thing. None of this is real. There is no voting rights crisis in the United States. It's made up, and they're trying to invent a crisis to not let the crisis go to waste in order to dominate elections in a Democrat-only bill, and they want to break the rules of the Senate to do it, it's actually insane, actually. It It is. It is, Guy, and you are absolutely correct. Um, There is this created hysteria over an issue that is not a real issue. The Democrats are gaslighting right now. Um, They're manufacturing something that has not happened. We do not see widespread voter suppression across the United States. And why? Because we have state and local elections officials which administer their own election laws in a fair and balanced manner. Um, So for them to say we need to take control, we need that power. And you mentioned being power drunk. That's, That's what's happening right now. The only way that they can get this done is by eliminating the Senate filibuster. Which they and used hundreds which of times. they have used over 300 times, I think, in the last uh, presidency they used to their advantage. It worked so well for them, but now in this day and era of a new administration with a Democratic president, House, and Senate, 
now, um, even though there really wasn't a mandate from the people of the United States, we're a 50-50 Senate and a very close House, they well, think— Well, not, not only that, Senator, just to jump in, it's a 50-50 mm. Senate. Biden actually had negative coattails in the House. The Democrats yes. lost oh. seats. On the day that he won the presidency, that is a major piece of information. Another major piece of information, and Karl Rove brought this up last program yesterday on the show, voters in New York just last year had on the ballot Mm -hmm. a few options to expand, quote-unquote, voting rights. These were Democrat proposals that they insist are very, very popular. Just common sense. It's all about letting people vote and, and empowering the voters or whatever. New York voters were asked, do you want to begin and pioneer same-day voter registration? So you register to vote on the day of the election, and then you cast your ballot. Do you want that in New York? And the voters in New York said no, and it wasn't close. They also were going to introduce uh, no-excuse mail-in balloting. They said, would you like to do that in New York? The people of New York said no. So they might tell us that this is all very popular and it's all about democracy in our elections, but... That's not true. And there's also really, really unpopular elements in the bills that they're talking about now, mm-hmm. breaking the filibuster to pass on a party line basis. It looks like they're not going to be able to do it. Your colleague, Kirsten Cinema gave her speech today, making clear she's not going to do it. Joe Manchin said it was an excellent speech. Mitch McConnell applauded her speech. It looks like this is all an exercise in futility right now and political impotence, and thank goodness. But they're making it pretty obvious what they would do. If they win just a few more seats, which is a scary prospect, and it, I think, brings into stark relief the stakes Mm. of these upcoming midterm elections. One of the things I want to ask you about, though, Senator, we talk a lot about voter photo ID, which 80 percent of the country supports. We talk a lot about ballot harvesting, which they want to take that crazy California practice and make Mm -hmm. it national. There's also this piece. It would implement what they call public funding of elections, congressional Mm -hmm. campaigns, where they would match every dollar from small donors raised by a candidate, match that with $6 from taxpayers. Why should some liberal, some progressive activist in, let's say, Connecticut, who can't stand you, Senator Ernst, hates your guts, that Senator Ernst is one of the worst senators in the country, why should that person's tax dollars be sent to your campaign. That's what the Democrats want to require. Right, and they shouldn't. And I don't agree with it, even though I'd love uh, I'd love to suck those dollars away from those liberals. But it's <laughs> it's their taxpayer dollars, and taxpayer dollars shouldn't be going to fund our campaigns. You know, if there are people that believe in us, they will support us. We shouldn't rely on money that should be used in various um, authorized federal programs. We shouldn't use that for political pollsters, political consultants to run ads, you know, really nasty ads on television. Our taxpayer dollars shouldn't be going to that. You know, and the bill, like you said, it would eliminate popular voter ID requirements at the polls. The majority, a huge majority of Americans, I don't care what demographic you come from, there's polling to back this up, but they appreciate voter ID at the polls. Now, even in Iowa, we do... We uh, we require 
voter ID. And I had a group of um, African-American voters that were upset, you know, about uh, voter ID. It was one of the issues they brought up. They wanted to speak to me. So I, I sat down and met with them. They were Democrats. And I asked them, well, what are you upset about? They wanted to talk about the elections bills. And they spelled it out for me. And I said, they said voter ID. And I said, well, what, what is it that you oppose about voter ID? And they said, well, COVID closed our DMV office. It wasn't that they were opposed to having a voter ID. It's uh, just that they couldn't go in because COVID shut an office of down that was in their neighborhood. Right. So they were for yeah, the voter ID, they said. It's just they couldn't go in and update their IDs. That is a really interesting anecdote. I'm glad you shared that. That is yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Senator Ernst, I want to shift gears because we only have a few minutes left. I know you've been talking a lot about and writing a lot about Iran. This is one of those threats that has not gone away. We're up on a break. Let me take it real quick. When we come back, we will shift to that very important issue with Senator Joni Ernst on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. Joni Ernst, U.S. Senator from Iowa, a Republican, my guest. I want to shift to foreign policy, and I want to play for you quickly a soundbite from the White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki who is trying to lay the blame for Iran's continued malign behavior around the world on President Trump. Mm -hmm. Cut 23. Most importantly, none of the things we're looking at now, uh, Iran's increased capability and capacity, uh, their aggressive actions that they have taken through proxy wars around the world would be happening if the former president had not recklessly pulled out of the nuclear deal with no thought as to what might come next. Okay, Senator. So Mm. whether you support the Iran deal, the Obama deal or not, uh, let's just put that off to the side. I thought it was a lousy deal, and I supported President Trump's decision to get us out of it for a lot of different reasons. We could have a whole hour-long conversation just about that. But how completely false is it to assert, as we just heard there, that Iran wouldn't be doing all these things and meddling in the region and proxy wars and developing weapons if not for the U.S. pulling out of a deal. Iran has been doing exactly that stuff for decades. I mean, do they actually believe folks are going to buy that spin? Well, and see, that's that's the problem if you're only getting your piece of news from the White House press briefings with Jen Psaki briefing, because what she did say, you're absolutely correct, Guy, is a lie. Um, because even when the United States was engaged in the Jikpoa with Iran and these other nations, Iran was continuing to do the things, as you pointed out, they yes. have been doing for decades. Even they did the not deal. alter behavior. Point. They did not alter behavior because of the Jikpoa. What they did was just made sure they hid it better. Um, they didn't allow um, those, those folks to go in and inspect certain areas. Well, why wouldn't they allow inspectors to come in to certain areas? Um, it's because they were continuing bad behavior in a hidden manner. So for Jen Psaki to say what she did about Iran, it's absolutely false. It is incorrect. It is not President Trump's 
fault that uh, Iran has continued on this path yeah, because the we pulled that out of engaged it. in exactly. for decades. They, they were killing change. our troops in Iraq by the hundreds. Yeah. We know that for a fact. They've been spreading weapons around to militias that they've backed. They were doing that during the GCPOA. They've been doing it before the nuclear deal. They've done it since. And to pretend, right. oh, it all came back to the foreign policy flaw of Donald Trump pulling out of a deal that Congress never came close to approving. In fact, a majority mm-hmm. of the Congress was against it. Yeah. It's just a total fiction. And it's weak. I mean, the weakness of some of these talking points out of the White House lately, I think, really reveals that they know on substance they don't have a strong case to make to the American people. And they're just hoping on people being ignorant and not getting fact-checked. I I think that's really what it boils down to. Last question quickly, Senator. The news today that U.S. producer price inflation jumped 9.7% in December last month from a year ago. That is the highest year-over-year increase on record. This comes on the heels of the other inflation mark hitting a 40-year high or 41-year high. We saw that the other day. I know the president's pounding the table on the filibuster and voting rights and uh, getting himself all worked up and slandering people in that process. Many Americans are just looking at empty shelves in grocery stores Mm -hmm. and looking at the cost of everything going up. That's what they're worried about. It seems like it's getting worse in some serious ways. How is this affecting Iowans? Guy, this is hurting Iowans, and we have seen our grocery prices go up. Of course, our our gas prices have gone through the roof, and it is a very cold time right now through the winter in Iowa. And Iowa families are seeing their energy costs for heating their homes skyrocket. And this is really unfortunate when you have families that are making very difficult decisions on how to stretch their dollars. You know, are we able to heat our house for this number of hours a day, or do we choose to put food on the table? Um, oh, my gosh, I can only put five gallons of gas in the car because it's it's going to cost me too much. You know, I'm going to have to scrape by. These are decisions that our hardworking families shouldn't have to make. But the really unfortunate part of this is that the man right down there on Pennsylvania Avenue that could be making a difference by addressing America's real challenges with inflation and unemployment and COVID. He's choosing not to focus on those issues and instead gaslight the American people and force other issues out there that are not issues. Um, Voter suppression is not happening on a a basis across the United States. Um, The filibuster will break not only the United States, but our republic. Um, Focusing on these issues and not the real crises at hand, it is undermining not just the United States Senate, not just the House. It is undermining the United States of America. Well, and it's also political malpractice for him. I mean, if he wants to keep stepping on the rake, that's, that's his business. That's his choice. But he's out there calling you and a bunch of other senators, including some of his own party, uh, some members of his own party, racists, while yeah. also browbeating those same people into trying to spend, what, $5 trillion more trillion in the face of this inflation. It's all crazy. In- it's incoherent. But mm-hmm. that is the president of the United States and the direction he has decided to go with his administration. A very, very far cry from the... The way that he presented himself to voters as a moderate who would bring down the temperature and unify people and work together, not so much. 
That's what President Biden is doing these days. And one of the people in Washington fighting him when the fight needs to happen is Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa. Senator, so appreciate it. Happy New Year to you, and we'll have you back soon. God bless you, Guy. Thank you so much. Have a great day. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier, we caught up with Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at The Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Had some fun with him. Here's part of that discussion. So, look, I wanted to ask you about a bunch of stuff, and maybe we'll get to some of it, but... I just want an excuse to play some of this audio again. I don't know if you saw Kamala Harris with NBC this morning, but it's just fantastic. It's so wonderfully horrible. And uh, let's let's talk. So she had a few fumbles on questions about testing, and she talked about how someone should go do Google for that, which is fun. Uh, she didn't know the numbers. This was a good one. Cut 26. It's back and forth with Craig Melvin. The 500 million tests that have been ordered that are going to be sent to every, every American, do we know when those are going out? Shortly. They're going to go out shortly. Next They've been or? ordered. They've been ordered. We, I have to look at the current information. I think it's going to be by next week. But soon. Absolutely soon. And it is a matter of urgency for us. Should we have done that sooner? We are doing it. But should we have done it sooner? We are doing it. Charlie? <laughs> it's, the, it's the mail-in vice presidency. You, you, you thought that you could not be more unprepared, even though Joe Biden has spent 50 years preparing for this. You thought it was not possible to be more unprepared. He picked a vice president who is even more unprepared than he is for this or for or, or for any service whatsoever. I have a friend I was texting about this. I actually just because I'm going to I'm going to play you this next. In fact, let me play you the next clip first. And then uh, we, we will riff on that. This was uh, the question from Melvin was maybe could it be time to pivot to a new approach on COVID? And like the data clearly makes the case for that. There are people who have worked in the administration who wrote an op-ed begging them to do that. They're stuck in this same rut treating COVID like it's, it's a different disease. It's like the, the former virus not adapting to new realities. That was basically the, the gist of the question. And the answer is just a work of art. Just paint it, paint it on a giant canvas and hang it in the Smithsonian. This quote, <laughs> cut 27. Does the administration say, you know what, this strategy isn't working. We're going to change strategies. Six former administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. (laughs) Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. And so right now we know we still have a number of people that that is in the million. So I I tweeted, Charlie, one of those inspirational posters, and this is a bald eagle flying in the air, and it says, dare to soar, dare to soar. And this is the inspirational quote for the day. It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day is the time. Thank you, Vice President Harris. (laughs) It really is amazing. I mean, you know, I'll I'll hand it to, to these people. There's a lot that is unpredictable about a pandemic. You know, for example, the pandemic. It's sort of, 
in and of itself unpredictable. Mm-hmm. But there is one thing that is absolutely predictable, and that is the variance. There, it's going to keep coming, and it's going to be shape-shifting and coming at you in a different form. And the idea that that was the one thing that everybody that, that, that both she and Biden have both acknowledged now, they did not see that coming. That was a curveball they were not expecting. <laughs> It's the only curveball that isn't a curveball. It's the only thing that they that you can absolutely guarantee is going to happen, and they were still completely uh, unprepared for it. And here's the other thing: you, you remember back when people were talking about uh, herd immunity, and you got killed. You were drummed out of society. You were a murderer. You were okay with everybody dying if you said something about herd immunity. And I get it. It's a, it, it, you know, especially at that time when there were a lot of questions and a lot of people were, and, and all the fear mongering was out of control. I get it. It's kind of, it, it makes you sort of queasy the idea that, okay, well, we're going to let this thing run its course. But start to think about this guy. Think about the, the, the number of lives that, pro, that could have been saved if at that moment we decided, okay, this thing is going to do its thing. Let us Stop with all the crazy rules and the lockdowns and the masks for children and closing schools. And all that. Let's instead focus on the most important thing, which is protecting vulnerable people. Let's do everything we can to protect vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing as what herd immunity is. And this Omicron thing is exactly what herd immunity is. Well, it's I'd say especially it's, during it's Omicron. Its course. Especially yeah. during Omicron, which is so contagious and so much more mild, like now would be the time to course correct and make a shift. But I must remind you, Charlie, no, no. It is time for us <laughs> to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day I, I can, is the time. I can and see one the of my friends texted me right now. <laughs> one of my friends texted me. She was listening, and. I, would, I don't know if you ever did this in your career, but when I first got to Washington, it was like 2010, 2011. I had just started at townhall.com. I was starting to do some very low-level TV appearances here and there uh, you know, within the last year or so. And our boss paid for us to go over to the Leadership Institute and do one of these media trainings where they put you in a fake little studio and they have someone who interviews you. And then they give you feedback on what's good and what works and some best practices. And she was like, has anyone has anyone thought about signing up the vice president for like a low-level <laughs> introductory 101 media training? Because it seems like she needs it. Yeah. No, and, and, and so does Joe Biden, by the way. I mean, this business, and Joe Biden has been doing this for 50 years. You would think he would be good at it by now. The, the, the whole talking to people thing, he would be good at it. But these lectures and these vicious lectures, and, and it was kind of interesting. He sort of changed his tone a little bit today on the Hill. He was a little bit more humble and respectful to the people he works for, i.e. the American people. He was a little bit more humble today than he was yesterday accusing people of being Bull Connor and, yep. and Jefferson, Jefferson Davis. It's astonishing. And, and, and we have to sort of, you know, we cannot become inured to it because it really is that appalling that you have a president of the United States haranguing half of the population as being Bull Connor and, uh, and Jefferson Davis because they don't want to go a- along with this electoral klepto uh, you know, Democrat installation preservation thing. Um, 
it's it's really appalling, and um, and and we and we can't lose sight of our own outrage. Did you have an elected president haranguing the American people the way Biden has been doing? My full interview with Charlie Hurt and the entire show today available on demand as always on the free podcast GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch skeleton crew here at the Guy Benson Show will explain when we return. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on this Friday Eve. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. If you miss any of the program today or any day, you really do miss a lot. I've started to hear from some friends who I'm delighted to find out actually listen to the show. I shouldn't be shocked that people who are friends of mine would occasionally tune in, but it's just cool to me that like personal friends, including some who don't agree with me, have started listening. One of my very liberal friends reached out. He said, yeah, I caught some of your show the other day. I said, really? He said, yeah, I just tuned in live. You were talking about Ron DeSantis and the attacks against him, and I have to admit, you made some good points. I'm like, excellent. If you can't listen live, there's a podcast. That's the whole reason I'm doing the little PSA here for the show, a little advertisement. Podcast free every day, on demand. No charge to you when the show's over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can just subscribe. That's the easiest thing. It's free. It's not going to cost you anything. And then you can check it out, and we appreciate every single one of those downloads or subscriptions and even positive reviews on, like, you know, Apple Podcasts or what have you. The reviews help as well. Just putting that out there. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, here at the show, it is starting to get kind of lonely around these parts. So we have Quiet Wyatt on the team who has been out this week. He's facing a family situation, and we wish them all the best and very well. And, you know, it's, it's tough when a relative, an elderly relative, isn't doing well, and, and Wyatt is with his family dealing with that. So we have been a little bit short-staffed without him this week. And he is... Quiet and diminutive and young, but he's also a force behind the scenes and really helps this show work. But we're professionals. We're making it work, making it happen. Then our engineer, Dan, he is down with what we believe is probably COVID. He said he woke up today feeling absolutely rotten. He's going to try to get tested, but quite sick. He thinks it's COVID. He's avoided it so far, but maybe the Rona has finally caught up with Dan, so he's out. And by the way, we appreciate all the help we're getting. It's like a team effort. How many people are, like, left in the engineering department at Fox News Radio right now? It's pretty decimated. Keep everyone in a bubble at this point. Everyone who's left. In any case, we have Wyatt out. We have Dan out. Producer Christine has been sick now for, what, two weeks? She has COVID, still not feeling better, although now she's on antibiotics and is, again, we think, on the mend. But that's what we thought last week when she got on the steroids. We talked about that yesterday. She still doesn't sound great. She's definitely not 100% herself. But it's down to, like, me and half of Christine. And (laughs) then people working hard to help us 
pull this thing together and get a show on the air. And again, we are extremely grateful for that. Josh is doing yeoman's work today in particular. But Christine, you're saying this is sort of not your worst nightmare where there's all this stress and you're having to produce a show with very little help. You're saying this is my worst nightmare because it's dwindling down and down and down to just Benson and Cookie. I mean, I always told you, I'll never leave, even during COVID. You do (laughs) say that. You have made this threat so many times. You're like, you will never get rid of me. (laughs) How much better are you feeling now? And does it feel like this might be a final recovery as opposed to a premature recovery that then went backwards? Well, I don't want to jinx anything, but I think we're on. I think we're finally, you know, I said this before we're turning a corner, but I mean, it's perfect to say I think I'm in the home stretch. I, I, I think I think I got this. I think the antibiotics are really going to, you know, kick this thing out of me. Unfortunately, when I had another doctor's appointment last night, he said that he feels it's probably a secondary infection, not necessarily COVID. But well, that um, would make sense because antibiotics would be for something else, probably. So correct. You, you yeah. probably had COVID and then some other illness because it is that season and people are walking around sick it happens did you really get back-to-back illnesses and you you couldn't have given this to dan right you've been working at home this whole time dan just got it independently no and don't forget they think that there's possible chance i could have had the flu first that stomach thing so it could have been back to back to back oh this could be like a, a trifecta yeah, I mean, yeah, but I'm not making any money off of it. So <laughs> I, I think I think we're good. I think we're good. I think I, I just need a little more time. Luckily, I can do all this, you know, most of it from home. But I know when I woke up this morning and I saw Dan had to call out, all I can imagine was your face when you probably had to read that text message. Well, I was trying to figure realized. out, like, I actually had a moment where I thought, what happens if Christine takes another turn for the worse and she can't even produce from home? Like, how does the show even happen? What do, what do I do? We're down everyone at that point. So I also had this thought, and I'm embarrassed to admit it. If you had the flu and then COVID and now something else in a row, do you genuinely believe, and this is a callback to yesterday, that if you had just engaged the services of what you call New Jersey's favorite psychic earlier, she could have seen this coming. Oh, Christine, you're going to have three in a row in this order. Do you actually believe that? Uh, yes. Well, there's two things that I believe that could have helped prevent it. Literally prevent in the cards? Third. Oh, my God. Well, there's two things here. One, I think after this year, I'm never doing dry January again. Because every time I get off the hooch, and I believe that's something that's probably clearing my system out and keeping me from getting sick, every time I stop the booze is when I get super sick. So that is, well, let's, let's think about that for just a second, because you got really, really sick in very early 2020, right? January, I want to say 2020. I think I was on my honeymoon, and you were extremely ill. It was dry January time. You got super sick, and we retrospectively wondered, was that possibly one of those very early undiagnosed COVID cases in America? It's possible, but you said it was like sicker than you've even been this time around. 
So there was that. Then last year you tried Dry January again, failed. You got 11 days in and then went back to the booze. But you also were ill last January. Here we go again. It could just be that you were very susceptible to getting sick sort of in this season with these temperatures after the holidays when you're around a lot of people, often crowded at parties and stuff. That might be the Occam's razor explanation here. But I'm not surprised that you would blame the lack of alcohol. And maybe the way to test it is next year. You do the opposite. You do wet January, right? You use the holidays as a buildup to a giant (laughs) festival of drinking in January and see if you get sick beyond your sort of typical hangover stuff. Although you were saying this year you've been really bitter and angry and resentful because at times you have felt hungover. Yes. Having not had a drop to drink, right? You're like, hang That's on. That's not fair. That's not fair. <laughs> what does Bobby think I've of this been... theory? He, uh, well, so, I mean, he'll, he'll play into it for me, but he says the same thing. He's like, Christine, I don't know. Every time you say you're going off the booze, you get super sick. So, and Bobby, uh, Bobby broke because uh, we were doing dry January together, but uh, he failed miserably and no, broke He cut and ran. He cut and ran. And you know what? I, I did the same thing last week, and I actually got a few notes from listeners, like DMs and notes on Twitter. Did you have some wine last weekend? Did you have some wine last weekend? Because on Friday's show, last Friday, I was discussing that we were going to have a dinner party and all that. Yes, I had, I believe, a glass of white wine because we had fish. We made salmon last Friday night. I had white wine with that. I had two glasses of red wine after that with our company, and that was it. Then Saturday, I had a glass of wine with dinner, and that was it. I, it wasn't a big drinking weekend. I was working all weekend. I was hosting TV Saturday and Sunday. So I did not maintain dry January until sort of the quasi-goal, which was tomorrow, but it was like a few glasses, and I will have a few more glasses, I would imagine, tomorrow and this weekend. I'm doing the show, by the way, from the bunker, considering that everyone's dropping like flies <laughs> all around this place. I'm doing the show from the bunker today and tomorrow. Hopefully that works. Back here tomorrow, come to mention it, dumb to think of it, on the Guy Benson Show, Friday edition, same time, same place. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. Stay healthy, especially you, Christine, or just don't get less healthy. How about that? It's the Guy Benson Show. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.